This episode is brought to you by La Quinta by Wyndham. Your work can take you all over the place, like Texas. You've never been, but it's going to be great because you're staying at La Quinta by Wyndham. Their free bright side breakfast will give you energy for the day ahead. And after, you can unwind using their free high-speed Wi-Fi. Tonight, La Quinta. Tomorrow, you shine. Book your stay today at LQ.com. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do. It. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. Hello and welcome to a special super dry clad edition of Romaniacs. To mark super dry founder Julian Dunkerton's £1 million donation to the People's Vote campaign, we're all sat here wearing tight fitting sportswear with How About a Proper Vote and You Can't Trust Reese Mog written on it in fluorescent Japanese lettering. It's quite a sight, let me tell you. Hello, I'm Naomi Smith. In my day job, I'm Chief Operating Officer at Best for Britain, but every week or so, I put aside diplomatic language and go full Romaniac on this podcast. I've got two of our regulars with me this week. Nina Schick is a business and political journalist, director of data and polling for the company run by Anders Fo Ramesson, the ex-NATO Secretary General and Prime Minister of Denmark, and she's our favourite person from Germany. <gasps> Hello, Nina. How are you? I'm very well. <laughs> Who's your favourite Brexiter this week? So I'm going to give you a choice between, you know, Liam Fox telling exporters he'd help them after cutting off access to their biggest market, um, and uh, Jeremy Hunt reversing his warning that a no-deal Brexit would be a mistake we'd regret for generations, and now saying it would be a big mistake for Europe, maybe after he'd been threatened by Jacob Rees-Mogg. I think Dr. Fox definitely takes the cake, you know I mean? He is going on very heavy on rhetoric about how he's going to help UK businesses export more, you know, 35% of our GDP after literally playing a fundamental role in cutting off, you know, UK's exporters' access to their biggest and most important market. And uh, I mean, I was in Germany when he was making that speech and I was just like, you know, it's so funny because he had the idea of sailing around the world with his Brexitania yacht. And this was around the same time when the news came out that Germany, again, is like one of the strongest exporting nations mm-hmm. in the world. Mm-hmm. And I just thought how ludicrous it would be if you saw the German uh, foreign secretary tweeting something like, Globales Deutschland, which for <laughs> <laughs> any benefit, if there's any doubt, you know, literally translated means global Britain. And how things like that are just so accepted in mm-hmm. the political debate here and how mm-hmm. ridiculous it looks from the outside. So I think Liam Fox's interjection or intervention this week was particularly bad. Well, we've also got Ian Dunn, editor of politics.co.uk, with us as well. Hello. Hello, Ian. How are you? Very well, very well. There's a new game out, new video game out. I know you're quite a fan. This one's called <laughs> Not Tonight, and it shows up uh, Britain uh, and what it's going to be like when Brexit all goes wrong and the economy mm. collapses. Uh, are you going to be playing it? Uh, no, because I don't really like indie games. But I did think it looked quite fun and quite sort of interesting. There's a, there's an old game called... So there's a bit of a growing culture in that sort of indie game world. Of, there was this one that came out a couple of years ago called Papers, Please, mm. where you play the role of this sort of border guard and you have to make decisions on whether people are allowed into the country. And apparently it sort of makes you make ever more difficult moral decisions until sort of the crushing weight of the authorities among you make, you know, force you to you know, start saying, well, OK, the little girl's going to die now. Yeah. <laughs> so by compromising your moral judgment in that way, that's supposed to be the engine behind it. I thought this game looked really, really really good it's just not the kind of thing that i play and this week we have a very special guest with us and just like buses you wait ages for a ramona conservative to come along (laughs) and then you get to at once last week we had garvin walsh from the pro eu wing of the tories and this week simon allison is our guest he's chairman of the conservative pro eu group citizens for britain hello simon welcome to romania hi delighted to be here thanks at best for britain uh we have been told this week that we aren't allowed to advertise the fringe that we've paid for to have at the conservative party conference in their conference directory. Um, so we're definitely persona non grata with your fellow Conservatives at the moment. Um, have you experienced anything similar? How are they treating Remainers like you at the moment? Yes, we have exactly the same thing. We launched over the summer a group called Conservatives for a People's Vote 
pretty self-explanatory, <laughs> uh, something that 50% of the electorate is now calling for. And we too had uh, probably the same email yesterday saying, sorry, but you're not going to be advertised in the handbook and you're not going to be on the website. Well, uh, and what do you think is behind it? Well, at first we thought or we hoped it might just be an administrative error mm. or possibly an overzealous Brexiteer member of staff. Um, but we, we've written to Brandon Lewis for confirmation. Philip Lee, who was, I think, a speaker at both our events, yeah. has written to, to, to Brandon Lewis. I think Justine Greening, who's also going to speak at our event, uh, had also has also now sent him a, a note. We haven't had any reply. The only reply we've had from the party, uh, as if by confirmation that it wasn't an accident, uh, is an email saying, we're going to send you your money back. So perhaps we're a little bit ahead of Beth for Britain there. Uh, £360 to the good. Um, <laughs> but I think it's pretty shocking yeah. that a party that has always championed free, free speech, speech yeah. and has had some, frankly, pretty wacky people talking at fringe meetings over mm. the years, and I've probably mm. been to mm. 20 Conservative Party conferences, mm. uh, is now basically trying to stop its members going to listen to two people who were until recently ministers yeah. talking about probably the biggest issue of the day. Indeed. Um, getting back to Citizens for Britain, um, what, you know, tell us a bit more about it, how, how you came to get involved in it. OK, I mean, you know, I, I, I've been long a Tory party activist. I stood for Parliament in 01, went off to Thailand in 2008 to work and came back in 2013, only to find we were still, as David Cameron would have put it, banging on about Europe. Mm-hmm. Uh, wasn't going to get particularly involved and then did get involved in the referendum and, and haven't stopped being involved since. Uh, and after the referendum, we were pretty shocked that so many Tory MPs kind of went, yeah, they lied, they cheated, mm. but that's politics and, well, we have to live with it. Yeah. And we thought, no, that that's not right. MPs in Westminster may think that, but ordinary citizens don't. No. If you're a company director or a doctor or a teacher, you have ethical standards you have to meet. And if you break them, you lose your job. You might even go to prison. So we don't think it's OK for politicians to have that view. Uh, but we realised that a, a straight anti-Brexit message wasn't really very resonating. Mm. Uh, it struck it struck people too much as remoning. So we we did launch a group called Citizens for Britain, which was a little bit of a take off all the for Britain groups that the other side have. Um, and initially, we did have a campaign Tories against Brexit, and that's still there, and we, we have a fair few followers. Uh, but it's been a little bit too direct for many MPs. And it, it's not great to be just against something. Yep. So we launched about two months ago, as I say, Conservatives for a People's Vote. Uh, it is obviously staffed primarily by Remainers, mm. but we don't see any reason why Leavers might not at some point also come round to supporting a People's Vote, because at the end of the day, they had a squeakingly narrow victory, won by fair means and some foul. Mm. And to be honest, with the young generation entirely against it, they need a little bit more of an endorsement and they don't have it. So even if they win... Uh, or they think they're going to win, they should be supporting it. That presumes a level of decency that I'm not entirely sure you'll find. Well, I have to say, you talk about decency. I think all the people who have joined Conservatives for People's Vote, Mm. and I mean, we now have significant support from MEPs, from peers and from MPs, uh, I think they've all been absolutely taken aback by what the what the government seems to be doing in terms of censoring the publicity around this fringe meeting. And, you know, you have to ask, is it part of a pattern? You know, you had a government that didn't want Parliament to vote on Article 50, that didn't want Parliament to have a meaningful vote at the end of the process, Mm. that appears possibly to have cheated on pairing, that has allowed its MPs and even its ministers to slag off the House of Lords as an independent source Mm -hmm. of power, uh, the judiciary as an independent source of decision making. And you have to ask, where does this end? If you're not even going to let your own members debate one of the biggest issues of the day, and we will conference. be coming to more yeah. of that later and talking exactly <laughs> about how it's going to end. Um, but, you know, we'll be talking about various other things too, including will the government offer uh, currently resident EU citizens in the UK uh, the right to remain? Um, at the start of the week, leaks uh, indicated that Theresa May would make such an offer. But by midweek, the Prime Minister was resisting access to health and benefits for EU citizens uh, if a right to remain offer happens. What's that going to mean? We're going to be discussing that and more. We're also going to be covering Mr Superdry's contribution to the People's Vote campaign and bracing ourselves for the release of that first tranche of the government's technical papers on the impact of Brexit on key industries. Plus, we've got a return of Ask Romaniacs and also our new self-explanatory feature called But Your Emails. But before all of that, here's my very glamorous assistant, Ian, with a few important reminders. 
As regular listeners know, we depend on the generosity of our supporters on the Patreon crowdfunding platform to keep Romaniacs in rude and unruly health. Now, there's another reason to sign up and back us, apart from those enviable Romaniacs mugs, suave Romaniacs t-shirts, and useful Romaniacs tote bags. Every Monday morning, Patreon supporters get an exclusive column by one of our panels sent straight to their inbox. So far, we've had Nina on why Britain keeps getting Germany wrong, Alex on what it's like when Donald Trump ruins your holiday in Finland, and me on what happens when Donald Trump ruins the standard of debate in your entire country. <laughs> Interested? Of course you are. You're listening to the show. So go to patreon.com and search for Romaniacs to find out more. If you're enjoying Romaniacs, but like a break from Brexit now and again, and who doesn't, then we recommend our companion show, Big Mouth, the Connoisseur's Pop Culture Podcast. Big Mouth covers everything that's interesting in music, TV, and movies. This week, they're talking about Matt Greening's new Netflix show, Disenchantment, the new album from Blood Orange, an intriguing biopic of James Lavelle, who founded Mowax Records, and lots more. Find Big Mouth at audioboom.com forward slash channel forward slash Big Mouth and visit patreon.com and search Romaniacs to support our show. Thanks, Ian. Okay, let's now browse the buffet of Brexit news. <laughs> First up, Theresa May is going to unilaterally offer 3.8 million EU citizens living in the UK the right to stay in the country in the event of a no deal. Or is she? <laughs> oh, yes, she is, according to one of those technical papers that we're going to be talking about later, which was leaked to The Telegraph at the weekend. Uh, apparently, Britain would take the moral high ground by making the offer. But, oh, it's probably also because we'll be very short of labour in health, construction and social care if we don't. However, by Wednesday, sources were backtracking wildly. And then Dominic Raab was telling the BBC that it's inconceivable EU citizens would be turfed out. Nina, as one of our very valued EU citizens performing a vital role here in the UK, uh, what's all this about? Is this the right thing to do? Is it likely to happen? Yeah, it's the right thing to do. But obviously, this is such a joke. I mean, it's been over two years. You've been used as bargaining chips for yeah. a long time. You have people here like myself who basically dedicated our lives to this country. We've been here for our entire adult lives and we still don't know what our status is and you know frankly that's unacceptable she could have of course made this offer if she wants to take the moral high ground at the very start of the negotiations yep. um, which of course hasn't happened it still hasn't happened and we know for, from many EU citizens who are here that the uncertainty has actually left them to leave we've mm. already seen the numbers dropping in terms of EU migrants who are coming to the country to exactly. work here and of course failing in this debate from the very beginning is there's been no voice that's publicly spoken out about the very value contribution that EU migrants mm. make to the UK, mm. not only economically, but mm. also in terms of culture, art, you know, supporting the NHS. Um, so I think all EU migrants kind of are, yeah. well, they have no faith in this government, really, yeah. unsurprising. And on the other side of the coin are British citizens who are living in Europe, because as far as they're concerned, their government isn't doing anything to kind of protect yeah. their rights either. Almost no one's looking out for those guys, exactly. really. I mean, you look at so you look at in France. It's it's a bit easier for British citizens when they um when there's a, a residency system, uh, residence sort of requirements um for uh, EU citizens going to live there. Countries like France don't have that. There's 150,000 Brits in France. They, I mean, at the moment when they try to get an appointment to to get their residency yeah. in France, they're being given appointments for February 2020, which obviously is after Brexit takes place. If it takes place. There's being given no assistance from the EU Commission whatsoever. There's no free legal advice from the EU. They're being given a very minor assistance by the Brits. I think there's one person at the FCO who's in charge of all of this, all of France and Belgium, and I think Luxembourg, to take care of this stuff. They have just been left out in the court. So every time the British government goes up and goes, well, we can't do this because then we can't guarantee yeah. the rights of, of our guys overseas. You just think, you haven't done, done that anything. at any fucking yeah, stage yeah. whatsoever. Simon, there was a lot of pressure, um, as uh, Nina alluded to, on Theresa May very soon after Article 50 was triggered to make this kind of offer. Um, how, how bad was it of her to treat EU citizens in the UK as, as a bargaining chip? Well, I mean, I think she started off by saying she definitely wasn't going to do that. <laughs> and you've had this kind of split narrative all the way along. And, you know, it, it really does, I think, come down to the fact that the Brexiteers themselves are split mm. between the kind of libertarian pro-American free traders who actually aren't all that bothered about immigration and are, and are basically worried about the impact of limiting immigration on business. Um, and then you have the other kind of more hardline nationalists who, who just want to stop all immigration. Mm. Of course, what you're now seeing is a fall in EU immigration, which is being outweighed by a rise in immigration from Asia and Africa, mm. which probably isn't what some of the Brexiteers had originally intended. Mm. Uh, and you now got the government 
government talking about lifting the, the cap yeah. anyway. So actually, all those people who voted for Brexit to stop mm. immigration are probably going to find they've still got it. And meanwhile, as we've seen, um, the, the, it's the Ipsos Mori poll that tracks sentiment towards immigration every month since the referendum. So for well over two years, uh, voters are becoming less and less and less concerned about immigration. It's now not the issue that it was. Um, yeah, I, I don't think the Remain case was very well made during the referendum at all. That you know, vast swathes of the economy, and I work in hospitality, uh, mm. the hospitality industry mm. is desperate mm. for EU workers. Mm. And you're already seeing restaurants closing yep. as a direct result of Brexit, both with finding labour harder to come mm. by and obviously food prices rising and some wealthy EU mm. bankers mm. and people leaving. Certainly in London, you, you've got desperation mm. among a lot of restaurant mm. chains. Mm. So, you know, it, it's a real impact. Mm. And it's astonishing that a supposedly pro-business government, albeit Boris may have a slightly different vocabulary to use there, um, <laughs> You know, is is so ignorant of the needs of, of British business. But people forget how to make the case because they've never made it. You know, even when we were to see like a, a fairly liberal immigration policy under, say, New Labour, they never made the case for immigration. Quite the opposite. They came up with some pretty toxic rhetoric throughout that period while doing something else entirely on the other side. Same with David Cameron, you know, tough rhetoric, completely different actions on the side. If you don't ever make the case, you forget how to make it. So there's almost no one in politics, including even, I would say, you know, in the Lib Dem, the kind mm. of leadership that has the, the guts to sort of go, immigration is a good thing for this country and to tell the story of why it is a good thing for this country. So then when it came to the referendum campaign, every time immigration was raised, their only option was to run terrified from the debate on the Remain side because they literally didn't know how to address it. And their first mm. instinct was just change the conversation, change the conversation. But that doesn't work unless you learn how to have the fucking conversation and win the conversation. You can't change anything in politics. Well, but, but I think one of the other problems is that if you actually look at EU rules, EU rules about free movement of workers... That was the original mandate. And if you actually delve down in your polling, there isn't much objection to free no. movement of workers. Mm -hmm. The problem is that workers got coalesced with people who don't have a job, with people who are failed asylum seekers who the police can't find and can't deport even if they were allowed to. So you have the people who are genuinely concerned about this, and there are people who are genuinely concerned and feel it's a threat to their jobs or their safety or whatever, and you can't just treat them all as idiots because some of them have been specifically undercut in their salaries mm. by people coming from the EU because that's a competitive market place that's what, what happens that's that's part of globalization but, but, um, but a large part of that is also for sure is, is for sure that it's certainly not for sure but isn't a large part I mean, whichever way we look at it it's certainly not for sure well i, I mean i know people who have specifically been undercut but, by, by people yeah. so let's, then you would have data to demonstrate something that, that Nina, you know, we're isn't, not really isn't a large over. part of the problem that the uk government chose not to put in place you know controls that it could have enforced yeah. under free movement laws absolutely and and, absolutely. Uh, and then it, it was very cynical when you saw during the referendum campaign how the leave vote was deliberately obfuscating you know the EU asylum and migration crisis, which by the UK has mm. a bloody opt out out of, and then confuse that, you know, confuse that with free movement, you know. Mm. And David Cameron had the goal to go to Angela Merkel. She's had one million people come into her country over the course of a few months and say, "Well, we want uh, an emergency break on EU migrants." She's like. Hell no, you know, you've just turned around and said you're not taking a single asylum seeker, so w we're not going to do this. Mm. And one of the industries that um, relies heavily on uh, EU staff is, of course, the retail sector. Uh, and most notable of whom this week, the super dry guy taking us higher, uh, the co founder uh, of casual menswear giant Superdry, Julian Dunkerton, has donated this £1 million to the People's Vote campaign to carry out very detailed polling of the electorate because this is what he's done with his business. He's constantly uh, done customer research to find out what they want and believes that this is how you how you win. Um, however, he has been denounced by the Express as a lefty multi-millionaire super dry founder sparking fury with a £1 million bid to stop Brexit. However, as Mr Dunkerton of Superdry said himself, uh, he could never have become the global success uh, that his brand did if Brexit had happened 20 years earlier. As somebody campaigning for a people's vote uh, with an option to remain, I have to be a bit careful about what I say here. So, Ian, uh, over to you. Does you're polling... always so careful the rest of the time. <laughs> Does polling work with all of this? I mean, is this how we're going to win arguments? Um, does it point us towards the, the sorts of arguments that we should be making? I don't know. I mean, I'm just going to repeat something that you said like two weeks ago, which is basically, it does, it's not really a great big public thing. It's really directed towards MPs, making MPs feel a certain way, certainly about their constituency, about the way that the nation might be going. It helps to sort of churn up the argument a little bit more to try and relieve 
get rid of some of the certainties, especially around that idea of that sort of monolithic, concrete people's will mm. that we've had the rest of the time. Look, with that kind of money, we should be able to offer some specificity to the polling data in terms of location and in terms of types of people. And that kind of stuff, when you're looking at the way that politics really operates in the engine room, yeah, it has some influence. And if somebody wrote you a blank cheque for a million pounds to spend on something to comics. stop Brexit, you'd spend it all on a, on a giant comic book. Great. Okay. Well, it's not just one comic book, okay, really, really big. <laughs> <laughs> not like Baldrick spending all his inheritance on a giant turnip or whatever it was. <laughs> Nina, um, the usual suspects, of course, have denounced this as anti-democratic, overturning the will of the people. How do we get across that idea that, you know, democracy isn't something that anyone can ever really tell you to shut up about? Well, I think the problem is if you're debating with ideologues, it doesn't matter what you say because they will interpret it in Mm. whichever way they want to. So, you know, these people saying this is like democracy being overturned, you're going against the will of the people. Well, you know, there was a vote in the 70s as well. And because we are a democracy, Mm. there was another. I mean, even though I don't recommend uh, ruling by plebiscite, the Mm. definition of a democracy is that people can change their mind. So just call out people on this kind of ridiculous ideological nonsense, you know, just call them out on their BS, basically. Simon, uh, Julian Dunkerton's personal fortune is something like 400 million. Um, He's exactly the kind of person that Conservatives attracted to vote for them, you know, serious business person. How have the Tory party managed to to sort of pit themselves against business? I mean, we had we had a former minister basically saying, fuck business, was it, in Boris Johnson a few weeks ago. Um, You know, how how damaging is it now that the Conservatives are burning bridges with people like that? It's astonishing to me. I mean, you know, I grew up in politics in the Thatcher era. And honestly, I mean, to look back on the Thatcher days as a halcyon era of, of liberal <laughs> democracy, it, for some people, I mean, I, you know, I had a post from my wall when I was a boy. I was a true oh Tory, God. right? Um, but, you know, the Tory party's electoral fortunes depend on a coalition. And part of that has always been kind of the nationalist mm. vote. But a big part of it has also been the business vote. And by business, I don't just mean business people. I mean everyone in the value chain of creation, ranging from teachers, scientists, entrepreneurs, financiers, small company directors, big business, anyone who's involved in wealth creation. They haven't all been Tories, but disproportionately they voted Tory. And right now you see the Tory party turning its back on that entire constituency. And for me, what I don't understand is the Tory party is basically hunting in the same voter voter base Mm. as the Labour Party and UKIP. Mm. And needless to say, there are not enough voters in that voter base for the Tory party to win a majority in the election. Mm. So if it thinks it can turn its back on basically your ABC Mm. one voter, your middle class, your educated voter, um, probably... Uh, they're not going to win another election. And, and, <laughs> and, 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 and just, just to finish yeah. that point, Labour was 17 points ahead in 2017 among graduate voters. Not just recent graduate voters, all graduate voters. That's mm. shocking. I mean, I mean, if the Tory party has lost basically the intellectual base of Britain, then it's going to be the stupid party of the 1830s again, 1840s. And do polls cut through with, with voters like that? Do you think that, that very, very serious polling being done by the Remain campaign will maybe you know, some of those people that you've just talked about that have always traditionally voted Conservative will now be persuaded not to on the basis of, 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 of poll shifting. Well, I, I mean, yes, to some extent. Everyone likes to be on the winning side. Mm. But I think the polls are more a reflection of what's happening. I mean, there's a degree of yeah, cause and effect, but, but, and the polls help. I mean, we did a poll of our own, uh, only of Conservative voters mm. in March, and we found that by two to one, they wanted another popular vote. By one and a half to one, they wanted to stay in a customs union. Mm. And the MPs just ignored it. Now, it did, however, give some sucker to those MPs who were rebelling. And you know, I don't know what the, what the best for Britain or the, you know, the PV campaign's mm. budget allows for. But I would like to see another poll of Tory voters done before party conference because mm. I think it would have some shocking implications for what the MPs And maybe we can poll them on uh, whether they own any super dry clothes and whether they're going to be burning them into the piece of fire now. Um, (laughs) Finally, a really quick one on the news belt, on these long-awaited technical notices from the government. Um, You'll recall these were the ones that the government intended to sort of dribble out over the summer, but then everyone started stockpiling food and insulin, and they (laughs) realised it was a really bad idea. So they kept them back, but the first load (laughs) is due to be dumped uh, this week 
week in a in a reminiscent way of Mr Burns releasing toxic waste into a river. Um, and by the time that listeners hear this podcast, uh, they, some of them will probably already have been out, in which case, Ian, you're probably going to be huddled in a uh, an emergency podcast bus shelter somewhere in Westminster. Um, but... Ian, you am make I, it sound so glamorous. <laughs> am I just too jaded and cynical now um, to think that the government is making a bit of noise about No Deal to garner loads of support for Chequers Light? I mean, really? is, is this part of yeah, it? falling the into the trap by talking up No Deal so that is, much. But, that, but then it says something and then it gets too scared and so it has to run back the other way. Just <laughs> like, you know, so when Jeremy Hunt came out and said, oh, this would be a mistake that we'd have for a generation. Mm. And within 24 hours, he was just saying, oh, you know, it's all lies and the media have made it up about it. <laughs> So, like, I mean, they, they sort of quiver in this ground of trying to spook people because it's the best argument yeah. for their deal. Yeah. And then on the other hand, sort of, you know, backing down whenever the levers push them. They've also got a bit of an issue on if you were to really put out an impact assessment of what no deal would entail for this country, mm. you would obviously undermine your own negotiating position because it would be so plainly cataclysmic that no one would ever do it. So you'd say, well, we're going to have to build in six months an awful lot of roads mm. and we're going to have to lease a lot of buildings and hire a lot of staff to man regulators. Now, everyone knows you can't do that. So if you were to just come out and put that down on the side of A4 and release it publicly, even though everyone already knows it, it undermines your negotiating position. It doesn't strengthen it. Then in other areas, you do want to reserve something even though we know, let's say, for instance, in mutual recognition of qualifications, we will do that, okay, for the same reason that we will not be deporting millions of Europeans, which is we need them here working. Yep. 10% of doctors in this country are relying on those EU qualifications. So we're not just going to say that doesn't count anymore. You've got to get out to 10% of the doctors in this country. Obviously, we're going to recognise it. But again, you don't want to put that down on the piece of paper when you're halfway through a negotiation because it undermines yeah. your position. So the whole exercise, although there is some kind of political reasoning behind it, does come across as very, very silly and counterproductive. According to The Independent, um, the papers are expected to employ measured language to avoid criticism <laughs> aired previously by Brexiteer MPs that the government is weaponising the idea of no-deal Brexit. That That's like weaponising a time bomb, right? It's already a weapon. It's already dangerous. Yeah, so you know, you're weaponising the gun that you're about to shoot into your own face. Mm. Mm. So it's like Russian roulette except all the barrels are filled <laughs> with bullets. Full. Right, yeah. okay. <laughs> Um, Nina, the, the government always looks at this through the prism of damage to UK business and infrastructure. Um, does the rest of Europe care about our internal preparations? Mm, not really. <laughs> <laughs> well, I mean, they care to an extent, but like a good example of this is if you look at the no deal scenario, you know, uh, the estimates are it could, you know, affect up to 4% of UK GDP. And the next country that's affected the most is Ireland. Um, mm. And if you look at countries like France or Germany, it's 0.2%, something like that. So mm. in Germany, for example... They, the government does not even, if there is a no-deal scenario, they don't think they need to have a centrally planned contingency backup, right? Mm. So for all the talk about German car manufacturers or Italian Prosecco, Prosecco producers suffering and you know quaking in their boots in the event of a no-deal Brexit, the fundamental reality is that it hits the UK the hardest mm -hmm. and thereafter Ireland. The It is not my base case scenario, precisely because of the Ireland issue, because if there is no deal, then there is a hard border in Ireland. So I think there eventually will be some kind of deal. But you can imagine talking again about, you know, speaking past each other, how ludicrous it looks when uh, <laughs> minister after minister goes on a Europe tour mm. and, you know, starts talking about how terrible no deal is going to mm. be for the rest mm. of Europe. It's just not the same. Simon, what, what, what's your view on how likely no deal Brexit is within the Conservative Party are people sort of seeing this as a, a way to get checkers checkers light through or do you think that actually they, they genuinely are preparing for it I mean, I think Ian's right. The government is dancing on the head of a pin because on the one hand, they have to try and convince the EU that no deal is a viable yeah. alternative for Britain. And on the other hand, they have to try and convince Parliament that it isn't, uh, which is quite hard, uh, <laughs> particularly because Eurocrats do actually read British newspapers just sometimes. They speak English. Uh, they speak English. So th their task is almost impossible. I'm actually most worried not about no deal Brexit, but about no deal yet Brexit. Mm. In other words, they, they sort out somehow Ireland, probably with a fudge. Mm. I'm not sure how, but, but let's say they do. Mm. And you end up with really just a very vague heads of terms as to what happens after we leave. And Parliament in desperation passes that and Conservative Remainers let it through on the grounds that effectively we're going to end up with a soft Brexit, forgetting that, that the day we leave, 
the Brexiteers will start their second push. Of course. And will yes. vote down any deal yeah. that, that Theresa May negotiates. And we'll probably try and get rid of Theresa May starting on the 30th of March next year. I think that's possible. It's, it's mm. basically exactly what David Adding Green was saying in the same mm. position. That, that, I think, is the real danger for, for Remainers right mm-hmm. now. If that fudge on Ireland, because remember, all of the future relationship yep. stuff is political. You deal with it after you get over the line. So they come up with something on Ireland or Theresa May, you know, buckles. In, in realism, the content of it will be her buckling, but whether she can sell it in a way with European assistance that gets her through with the DUP. Mm. That, to me, is the real danger point of this thing taking place. Yeah, but you're, you're, one of the problems we have in the Tory party is, you know, the moderates hate rebelling. They, they are moderate. Mm. And so a lot of them are running for the soft Brexit option and hoping that, you know, Theresa, the Chequers will get watered down to the point where it is basically EEA after. And therefore, that's it. And, and they've won not realising that the game doesn't end on the 29th of March. Yeah, yeah. And unfortunately, when you've got implacable extremists, as you have within the ERG, they will simply say, well, we've, you know, we've got to first base and now we're going for second base. And we, you know, we quite rightly focus a lot of our attention on this podcast on the MPs. But uh, just before we recorded, I saw that the um, House of Lords Economic Affairs Committee have summoned Dominic Raab to come and talk to them about the no deal stuff next week. So that's when Parliament is not sitting. That's pretty unprecedented. Uh, what, what's our view on uh, the role of the Lords here? I, I'd always assumed they probably wouldn't ping pong back and that, you know, they, they'd try and push their amendments through and then accept it once the Commons hadn't. Are we hearing anything about what they might be up to? Well, there's certainly not going to be on, on the sort of if, if the Commons accepts a deal, there's never going to be a situation where the Lords, you know, mm. opposes them on the deal as a whole. What they will probably do is they will ask questions, which is exactly what they did during the EU withdrawal bill, which is like, here are the areas that we think you guys haven't talked about enough. We're going to pass them back to you. It, you might remember at the time, everyone said, my God, how dare they? How dare they do this? But of course, as soon as the Commons said, we're not taking those suggestions, the Lords instantly backed down. They didn't take it to the full ping pong of, of your three shots and you're out. Yeah. And they would behave in exactly the same way here. Although, of course, that would only be on the final legislation. I mean, by the time mm. she's coming back with the deal that's just emotion so there isn't you can amend it a bit but there isn't that much there for the laws to do this brings us back to the wider subject of the remain grouping within conservatism and our guest simon allison of the conservative group citizens for britain garvin walsh gave us a relatively upbeat assessment of how remain tories and especially remain tory mps are doing what's your assessment simon because a lot of our listeners have been pretty disappointed at how easily dominic grieve at our sort of rode back from from their positions Tory moderates are by definition moderate. They're not in Parliament to bring down a Tory government. And so they do find it psychologically very, very difficult Mm. to rebel. And perhaps I can take you back a few years to another group of Tory rebels who were facing a situation where the government wanted to turn its back on Europe. And a group of rebels were absolutely passionately convinced that they shouldn't. Mm. And those rebels were vilified in the press. They were threatened with deselection. Mm. They were slammed by their fellow MPs. And unfortunately, by the time they took power in 1940, the war had begun already. (laughs) Now, we're in actually a very similar situation today. You have a small group of brave rebels who are trying to stand Mm -hmm. up and say Britain turning its back on Europe is a disaster. And for conservatives, it's not just an economic disaster Mm -hmm. because we've spent our entire history trying to prevent the continent of Europe uniting against us. And this is not a warm, wishy-washy view of the EU. This is a very Mm hard-nosed kind of Michael Heseltine view. You know, Britain exists to maintain the balance of power Mm. in Europe, and that's Mm. what keeps us safe. And Brexit destroys all of that in one fell swoop. So it's essentially a betrayal of every British leader from Elizabeth I to to Margaret Thatcher. And um, this is why we needed Tory remainers on the show. No one else would have made that argument. But but it's absolutely true too, right? I mean, it's that's not what Tories do. So so we basically have a a Chamberlain Baldwin government when we need a Mm. Churchill government. Mm. And those remainers are fighting hard, but they are faced with deselection threats in in many Mm. cases. Mm. And they do have natural bonds of loyalty to the party. And of course, that always held over them is if you do this, Jeremy Corbyn will win. So they really, really don't want to rebel. But gradually, I think the logic of the situation is that they realise, and and they will realise more as each week goes on, Mm. that the ERG, that the extremists are implacable. They will keep pushing and pushing and pushing. If they get soft Brexit, they'll push for hard Brexit. Hard Brexit, no deal Brexit, basically the same thing, right? Um, And they'll be perfectly happy with that. I don't think Parliament is going to allow Britain to fall off a cliff. But quite how it gets resolved, I don't know. And one of the reasons I'm backing a people's vote is that I actually think it gives the government a relatively secure escape route without humiliating itself in Parliament. And and that's really interesting. But what is the route 
two guessing that people's vote as you see it. It's something we talked about a little bit on the podcast before. You know, if, if Theresa May gets defeated at the meaningful vote, would she resign? Who would succeed her? Well, how, how do you see us getting to that situation where we actually have a referendum? Goodness knows how it's all going to play out. Clearly, if there is no agreement with the EU... Um, Parliament might decide that rather than any one party taking responsibility for the mess, they'll throw it back to the people. Mm -hmm. Clearly, if there is a deal but it's defeated in Parliament, the same thing would apply. Now, I think one of the problems is that the moderate Tories are are relying on the extremists to vote down whatever Theresa May comes back with. Mm. I am not convinced they're going to do that Mm. because they only have to get to the 29th of March Mm -hmm. with nothing happening Mm. and they've won. Mm. And I say they can always change it later. So actually, we need 30 moderate Tories. And by the way, I mean, we we talked a lot about the Conservative Party. We need the Labour Party to step up too, which it's slowly, grindingly getting towards, but it is very slow and we don't know if they'll get there. Uh, But we need 30 Tory MPs who are willing to stand up and be counted, you know, before the war breaks out, as it were, before Mm. it's too late. Mm. And Dominic Grieve said that he'll leave the party if somebody like Boris Johnson uh, became leader. How many people do you think he could take with him? And, um, you know, in the 1990s, we had the, the pro-European Conservative Party under John well, Stevens yeah, well, okay. aimed to get Heseltine and Clark to join it. Um, it. Second time around, could that could that work with Grieve and maybe Philip Lee and Green? Well, and it, was, it was the pro-Euro Conservative Party, which united the My two apologies. most unpopular things in Britain in one offering, <laughs> which, which, which didn't really work at the time, as, as John will well remember, and I know John quite well. Um, so not, it wasn't that clever. Uh, the problem we've had, actually, is, is that when you're kind of a defeated army, people flake off in all different directions. Mm. So some people drop out of politics, some people join the Lib Dems, some people just kind of grudgingly go along with it all. And that's the problem. You actually need everybody to stand up behind the same platform. Um, a lot depends on personal ambition. Mm. The reality is the two most successful political parties in terms of moving the needle in British politics in my lifetime have been the SDP and UKIP. UK. They've actually changed what happens. But they haven't got a lot of people's jobs. And if MPs are there for themselves, and, they're, and, and, and fair enough, it's a job. It pays for their families. Um, you can't expect them just to wantonly throw it away. Mm. Um, so, you know, you, you, if MPs are willing to rise above that and say, look, I'm sorry, but the national interest dictates, then you might get a few flaking away and, and forming a new party. Mm. Um, but, but they'd have to do it in the knowledge they probably won't win the next election. They might just change the change the story Mm. and it's very hard to know who's willing to do that certainly at this point our view is it's much more important to to win the battle to take the you know to take back control of our party uh, as a moderate center-right party and the voters are with us i mean that that's very very clear Mm. tory voters do not want an extreme brexit they Increasingly, I mean, at least a third of them, even after two years of one-sided propaganda, are still Remainers. Mm-hmm. That's four of four million voters who are Tory and Remainer mm-hmm. who don't have a voice right now mm-hmm. at all. Mm-hmm. And, and you know, you sort of mentioned about UKIP uh, being one of the most successful movements, and it's sort of firmly back inside your party now, really, uh, in terms of <laughs> yes, uh, the, the, the voices and the direction of travel. And you know, the, the Maastricht rebels, if you like, have taken control of your party. So, what lessons are there in any of those tactics for Tory Remainers in terms of Getting getting control back. Well, I, I don't. I don't think there are lessons in that because it's always the case. If people are more fanatical, they are willing to go along to meeting after meeting and give up their evenings and give up their lives. Whereas your ordinary average voter isn't. Mm. So whatever we do, we have to do it differently. Um, I think what is going to happen. I mean, what I what I'm relying on is what I call the poll tax moment. Mm. Now, the Tory Party loves to cite that it got elected on this mm. manifesto or that. Tory history is resonant with the sound of reversing engines. Now, whether it's the Corn Laws or Catholic emancipation or imperial preference or appeasement or the poll tax, we quite often get stuck up a cul-de-sac. And what the party has been very, very good at is reversing out of it and giving up a policy that is daft. Mm. And right now it's perfectly clear that the vast majority of normal Tory voters think Brexit is daft and the Tory party has to wake up and, and, and adapt itself to that. Now, to do that, you need a significant number of backbench MPs who are not fanatical one way or the other not Romaniacs or extremists, but just people who want to get elected and serve their constituents, to go to Theresa May and say, sorry, love, it's not working. And we need to stop and think about this. And you would hope that their self-preservation instinct would allow that to happen. And our job is to make sure that they know the voters aren't happy and that they know there is a coherent Tory narrative for why it is vitally important for Britain to stay fully engaged in its own continent. So what would you make uh, the central offering of a post-Brexit Conservative Party? I think it has to tackle the... 
I mean, firstly, I think it has to be open and internationalist and assertively internationalist. In other words, that's what conservatives are about. We're about punching for Britain and for the West. Mm -hmm. And the West is obviously under an existential threat of 500 years of world domination, which is very rapidly going the other way. Mm -hmm. So the West has an issue and we need to deal with that internationally. But I think it's also fundamental that we tackle the causes of the discontent that caused Brexit. You know, we have, because of a the financial crisis and then 10 years of low interest rates got ourselves into a position where anyone with assets has got vastly richer and anyone without assets has got left behind. That is not good. Uh, You have an average age of buying a house in Britain, I think, of 35. You have a lot of people still living with their parents. You have very little progress, really, in tackling social inequality. And we need to find policies to solve all that, which is quite hard when the West is probably beginning 500 years of decline and the East is rising, but we have to find ways to to give sucker to the people who got left behind. And if we as a party aren't able to do that, then the next generation will not forgive us for that. Is, is there any future in which you could ever imagine yourself leaving? Or will you, will you always be sort of like die in the ditch, I'll fight for my party right to this sort of end? You know, I joined the Tory party when I was 15. As I say, I had Maggie's poster on my wall when I was 15. I would have been in the main conference hotel for the Brighton bombing if it hadn't been Freshers' Week at Oxford. So, I mean, I'm about as dyed a woolen Tory as you can be. Um, But frankly, yes. I mean, if the party were led by ERG-type people and were basically a little England party trying to take us back to an imagined 1950s that never really existed anyway, there's really nothing in it for me. Um, but, I'm, but, but I'm not giving up without a fight. And I think we, we will keep fighting for the soul of our party because Britain needs a moderate centre-right party. Um, because if not, you're going to end up with the extreme left and the extreme right. And you're back to you know 1930s Germany. And I don't think any of us want that. No, we don't. Finally. <laughs> <laughs> Finally, it's the return of Ask Romaniacs. We ask listeners and social media followers for their questions and we're going to field some of the best ones. Manu from Belgium asks, outside the UK political bubble, what are the biggest factors determining Brexit's outcome? Are there any significant ones? Nina. Well, obviously, the EU has many other issues on its plate, and Brexit is not the most important issue. Um, if you look across the continent, if you look across the Atlantic, what's happening in the United States, and then also what is happening in Russia vis-a-vis Russian interference in the U.S. election, and also in many European elections, and the kind of rise of the populist right across Europe is first and foremost mm. on uh, the minds of many European politicians. So. I think it's very, very unfortunate for Britain, particularly at this time, you know, when it decides to cut ties with one pillar of its foreign policy, the EU, at the same time, the second pillar, the United States, is also going up in flames. Mm. So I think (laughs) uh, despite our kind of obsession with Brexit in this country, the the sad reality for uh, Brits is that Brexit simply is not the most important issue at a time when the whole world is in severe geopolitical crisis. Tanya Jane Park on Facebook asks, what positive action can a Romaniac living in a constituency with a Brexiteer MP do? This is my predicament, and whilst I do correspond with my MP, I feel there's nothing I can do to change her mind on Brexit. So me answering that, I would say, please, Tanya Jane, get all of your friends and family that live in other constituencies to be in very regular contact with their MP um, as much as possible, uh, letting them know that that there is a chance to stop Brexit and that they would appreciate their MP uh, doing so and voting the right way when when the bill comes back to the Commons later in the year. But maybe maybe Simon's got a few choice words for somebody living with an MP who's firmly on the other side. I think it depends how firmly... You know, if if they are sounds a Brexiteer, like it's a pretty pretty staunch Brexiteer. If it's a pretty staunch Brexiteer, it's pretty it's pretty hard to to move them. I mm. mean, it's it's almost a religion. Well, it is. It's a religion. Mm. It goes beyond any rational logic in most cases. So, um, I, th- I think the trick is to make sure that you're talking to other Conservatives and showing them that actually they are not alone. Mm. As I say, our polling show there are four million Conservative voters who are Remainers. And that's really without having had any voice supporting them for the last two years. So they need to make their, themselves heard. So there you go, Tony Jane, either sell your house or uh, go and join the local Conservative <laughs> Association. There is like a sort of, um, I don't know about the, whether they're harder or not, but like there is a manner of writing to MPs of just, you know, do not be angry. 
do not be abusive. So what I, you want to do I've is got to it... stop using my green pen. <laughs> exactly. Yeah, yeah. You covered emojis of like stabbing actions <laughs> and blood and blah. So like the thing is, it's it's almost like you know when you pitch to an editor in journalism, you're always sort of told, or if you're a PR talking to a journalist, you're always sort of told make it as easy for them as possible to take the copy to do the stuff. And you want to do exactly the same with a politician or any other public figure that you're approaching. Make it as easy for them to change their mind as possible. And the more you go in, you know, with abuse mm. and anger, the less likely they are to be prone to do so. But actually going in is, is, is a good point. You don't just have to write letters. Uh, I find that MPs react much better uh, in person. Um, they mm, really feel the pressure when you turn up a, a constituency surgery. So, so do go on your local MP's website and find out when their constituency surgery is happening and mm. go and, and, and make a, a, a human appeal to them. Uh, you know, tell them about your own story and how uh, Brexit is going to affect you. So appeal to their, their soft centre. Uh, by going and seeing them. Yeah. We've got another another question that I think I'm going to fire towards you, Ian. This one's from William Barter, also on Facebook, and he asks, will Corbyn truly feel any pressure to change his position unless Labour MPs state clearly that they are prepared to quit the party over his Brexit position? Yeah, I think I, I think so. I mean, that might, I, I agree that that's obviously the sort of the real sort of nuclear option stuff. But there's plenty of others. I mean, there's pressure from, say, trade unions. has quite a lot of impact on him. Pressure from youth bodies, youth organisations. Organizations that because the Corbynites sort of think that they get to own, they have a monopoly on that kind of view, it has more of a pressure on them. Basically, I think it's especially the case, this is it, and we sort of know this, we, we've heard again, I think David Lammy made the case really well when he was on here, of just like when it comes from certain figures in the sort of centre of the Labour's parliamentary party, it's taken as, well, this is just your leadership bid and you've chosen whatever vehicle happened to be handy at the time. When it comes from within the sort of demonstrably quite hard left camp, um, it's a very, very different thing. So I, I wouldn't understate the role of ideology and a sort of comradeship in mm. shifting Corbyn's uh, view. And he might actually be quite relieved if some of those MPs did leave his party. Yeah. Well, they imagine. can't work out if they want them to stay or go. It's always exactly, like, yeah. fuck off and stay yeah, in the party. Yeah, 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 like yeah. The <laughs> Simon, Matthew <laughs> Flinton asks, is Brexit the poll tax of this generation? It's an oversimplistic, unworkable and damaging policy dream uh, from right-wing politicians like the poll tax opposition will only grow as the consequences become clear to the electorate. Well, funnily enough, as as you know, I just said we need a poll tax moment. And I think, you know, the poll tax is the last clear example of a policy which may have been good in its original intent, but but just didn't work and wasn't popular and the party backed away from it. Um, So so in a way, yes, I think it it is a a new poll tax moment that Mm. we need. Whether, in fact, the ideologues who are pushing Brexit wake up to that, I, I just don't know. I mean, in, uh, uh, as I vaguely remember it from the time, um, the poll tax was trialled in Scotland. And mm-hmm. when it bombed very badly there, it was then pulled by the, the government. Um, and in, in a sense, you know, Brexit is, you know, is, is a similar ish, issue that, that Scotland is so vehemently opposed to it by, compared, by comparison to, to lots of areas in England. But, you know, again, it sort of seems to be that we're sort of you know, trying to damage Scotland for the sake of um, some voters well, in England. We haven't actually talked about the union, you know, unions with Northern Ireland and Scotland. But I mean, one of the slightly shocking things for me is I went back and looked through kind of the foot bend policies of Labour in the 1980s. And they involved massive cuts to defence. Uh, being very careless about preserving the union, attacking independent bastions of the British constitution like the judges and the House of Lords, leaving the EU and slagging off British business. And that's kind of the policy mix we have right now, or at least the rhetoric. (laughs) So, um, you know, at at what point did the Tory party of Theresa May become the Labour party of Michael Foote? I'm not quite (laughs) sure, but it's sort of happening. And, you know... It's, it's like uh, uh, the best analogy for me is Milton Keynes Dons. You know, they used to be Wimbledon and then they moved to Milton Keynes and they thought for a while they could still keep calling themselves Wimbledon. Oh, <laughs> but yeah. people sort of saw through that mm-hmm. and they had to change their name. Mm-hmm. And just because you've got a blue T-shirt on, if your policies are basically extreme left-wing Labour policies, you're not really the Tory party anymore. So I hope some Tory voters will, will kind of alert their MPs to the fact that they've gone off in the wrong direction. Finally, we've got a very serious question from former guest of the show and someone everyone should follow on Twitter, John Elledge. He says, ask Dunt which of the X-Men the cast are, just to see his little face light up. He's such a twat. (laughs) 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 Okay, so um, Andrew is uh, Professor X, despite his lack of follicle challengement because he brought us all together. Um, Naomi, uh, you're Jean Grey because you're the one with all the sort of machinery behind you when you go to thing. You have all the powers. You come back from the dead <laughs> over, over and over again. Um, uh, Nina, oh, can I cheat? You're going to be uh, 
Karnak, who's from the Inhuman, so I'm sort of treating him his powers to see the flaw in all things, which is <laughs> the approach that you take in most of these things. Dorian will be um, Havoc, because he always likes the bridge building. He's always into the bridge building as Dorian. Havoc's always trying to make sort of things between the mutants and the humans. Roz. Roz. No, wait. Okay, I can do Alex. Alex is going to be... Um, is his name the guy with the cards Gambit because he's got an accent <laughs> <laughs> and Roz I've got, oh, I've got to work on Roz is it Roz, oh Roz Cyclops because you know sort of looks serious but actually underneath more of a radical than you would otherwise assume <laughs> can I be Wolverine <laughs> no, well, A because everyone wants to be Wolverine but B I like beer and I quite like the fighty cutty <laughs> we'll let you have it. We'll let you have great, it. Great, great. I'm This week only. Um, we couldn't fit them all in, but we will do another Ask Romaniacs soon. So before we finish, we've got time for the exciting new feature, which last week's guest, Garvin Walsh, cleverly gave the name... But, but your, your emails. emails. This is a, we can't do that every time. It is lame as fuck. <laughs> Listener Carl Palmer from Cape Town says... Please find my suggestion, re-Brexit, submitted to the EU Parliament on a recent trip to Brussels. It reads, Allow citizens from former EU states to retain their EU membership should they wish to. If more than 50% of the country opt to do so, the country should be automatically re-admitted. Excellent idea. Are we supposed to wait? Because there is, there is a national sovereignty <laughs> argument that he kind of trampled over with that. I'm not sure it's entirely comfortable, but sure, no, I mean, you know. Put our emails, put our emails. Put our emails, no, I'll shut the fuck up. Uh, Chris, Chris uh, Betterton in New Zealand says, as a Remainer who left the UK for my mother's homeland, New Zealand, a year ago, the delusion of the so-called liberal leavers about their beloved bilateral trade deals has been made very clear. There is absolutely zero interest in a trade deal with the UK here. The older generation, who for a long time were more British than Britons, remember the damage the loss of the UK market did when it joined the EC uh, to New Zealand in the 1970s. And the younger generation don't have any particular special affinity or special interest in the UK. The trade deal they care about is the one that New Zealand is negotiating with the EU, which, of course, the UK will miss out on. This has probably caused me to use the facepalm emoji too much. Andrew Lillico will be devastated. He will, Well, he's quite devastated all the time. But at <laughs> least he can start dreaming about the British space troopers that he would invent in the future. So if you want to have your say on the show, then please email us at info at Romaniacs.com. Keep your message tight and mark it for podcast and we'll read out as many as we can. Before we go, it's time for the Brexit time capsule. Uh, something that we'll miss if we leave the EU or things that we'll need once we're out on our own. Simon, as our guest, you get to choose. What are you going to put in the time capsule for? Okay, well, the thing I think we will miss, is, one of the things we'll miss is Erasmus, the student programme for, for mm. allowing our students to go and study mm. in universities across the EU. I think a couple of hundred thousand Brits have used it. So it's been, it's been very important. Have uh, any Conservative MPs been on Erasmus? Do you know, I don't know that. that I bet one or two out. might have been. A good question. We can probably do a freedom of information request on that. <laughs> I mean, you'd have to get into the Tory conference in order to answer it, really. <laughs> you know, but, uh, unless I'm suspended, I will certainly be going to the Tory conference. <laughs> Finally, the traditional clip of a non-English EU language. Remember, we want yours too. If you speak a European language sorry, English doesn't count, then record an appropriate few <laughs> lines on your phone and email them with a translation to info at romaniacs.com and we'll use the best ones. Here is listener Angela Rath with a lovely bit of Italian. Quando finirà questo incubo che Brexit? Spero presto. It means, when will the nightmare that is Brexit end? I hope soon enough. Here, here to that, and that's the end of the show. Many thanks to our special guest, Simon Allison. Have you enjoyed your group therapy session with us in a, in a dodgy basement in Soho? <laughs> Absolutely. I, when I was younger, I dreamt of spending time in a dodgy basement in Soho and wouldn't have been doing a podcast. And many Conservative MPs have. <laughs> <laughs> Keep up the good work. And thanks as ever to Nina and Ian. We'll see you soon. Now turn up the volume for our theme tune, Demon is a Monster by Corner Shop. And special thanks to some of our lovely Patreon backers. It's vielen Dank from me to Connor Bayano, Joel Crooks, Matthew Bloch, Richard, just Richard, possibly Richard Branson, and Abigail Smith. And it's uh, muchas gracias. Uh, no, I'm not going to do that, right? Okay. And it's um, uh, muchas gracias. Thank you for me to general support uh, from Steve Clark, Bridget Saunders, Matt Brooks Smith, Daniel Godley, and Robin David Johnson. And finally, a massive thank you from me to Amanda Suarez, Ed Bamfield, Codzo, Richard Allport and James Lockerbie. Many thanks and we'll see you next week.
Romaniacs was presented by Naomi Smith with Nina Schick and Ian Dunt. The producer was me, Andrew Harrison, and studio production was by Jack Claremont. Romaniacs is a Podmasters production.